This is Masonic Muscle, where we explore the mysterious origins, history, traditions, and symbols of Freemasonry, while at the same time encouraging you brethren, that means you, Jeff, to increase your level of fitness one degree at a time, strengthening your body, mind, and soul, and getting an awesome mental, muscular, and spiritual pump. We are progressively increasing the resistance because Freemasonry is a progressive science. We give you more light, but no lightweights. And before we begin with this interview, I want to ask you once again, brethren, and officers, any officer of California, have you been reading your ciphers? Have you been doing your memory work? If not, why not? You know what you got to do. You know it's hard work. Yeah, we know you're busy, but have you been digging into your ciphers? Have you been strengthening your Masonic knowledge base with some good research, some study, some memory work? And of course, the best way to get it is some great conversations, right? Socratic style. And have you been making exercise the cornerstone of your daily routines? If not, what are you waiting for? All right, today I have a special guest, someone that I've known for quite a bit and a past master of my mother lodge, our mother lodge, Ponsonese Lodge number 693. He's been a member for almost 31 years. You're getting close. You're getting close, but it's, uh, you know, over 30 years. He's a past master, past secretary, past everything, officer's coach of our lodge. He was one of my mentors uh, as far as a ritual work, some of the administrative and some of the history of our very own lodge and um, many other things. And tonight, so today we have brother Jeff Bear. He's with us and he's going to share some of his experience. Jeff, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Uh, how's the weather over there in Tennessee? Cloudy, windy, and we had some pretty good rain. The wind blew so hard last night, it kept us awake. It woke us up a couple of times. It's, <laughs> it's pretty interesting where we're located because we're up on a hill, so we don't have to worry about the floods that people hear about. But we do get tornado warnings. We've been through two tornado warnings in the last two years. So... You know, there's that, but we're still here and we're still kicking and we're having a great time. Okay. And so what I wanted to get started with here, uh, Jeff, is uh, something very interesting is because we've had this conversation many, many times, at least I did from my end, you know, whether you were listening or not, but either way, you know, you can answer now, but uh, uh, because of what we went through, what our lodge went through starting back in 2015, I would like to know through your eyes, uh, went all the way back to 1991, when you first started in masonry, then you came to Palm Springs, and then you committed to going to the chairs. What types of changes have you seen in the way Freemasonry was, was being practiced then, uh, the way you practiced Freemasonry when you were going to the chairs and you became master, and then uh, when we came in in 2015 and uh, you know, began to implement some things that we felt would only help strengthen our lodge. Okay. Um, well, I was initiated, passed, and raised in a lodge in Brea, California. It was called Citrol Lodge. The reason they named it Citrol is because there were two uh, industries in Brea, and one of them was orange groves, citrus, and the other one was oil. There were a lot of oil wells in, in, in Brea as well. So they came up with the name Citral. They've since consolidated with a couple uh, with a couple of lodges, 
but I believe they're still meeting in the lodge where I was uh, initiated, passed and raised. Um, I joined the fraternity in 91, as Caesar said, I was initiated, uh, received my second degree in January of 92 and my third degree in March of 92. Um, I had a great coach when it came to the uh, proficiencies and learning, learning the ritual proficiencies um, for him. And it was something that stuck with me was close enough isn't good enough. It's got to be exact. He would not let me return a proficiency unless I had it down. So he, he, he made sure that I knew it, what I was saying and I understood what I was saying, but he also made sure that I had it to the letter. And that kind of, uh, well, it made me very confident in, uh, in my ritual work. So in 93, I moved to Palm Springs for a job. And <clears throat> I was there for about, oh, two months. And I, no, not in 93, I moved to Palm Springs in 90, 90. Yeah, that's right. I drove back and forth for my degrees from Palm Springs to uh, to Brea. And back then it wasn't a bad drive. It was maybe about 45 minutes. Today, that same drive will take you two and a half hours. So anyway, um, somewhere around uh, somewhere around after I received my third degree, I started going to Palm Springs Lodge. And sitting there on the sidelines uh, one day um, at a stated meeting, I was, I was listening to the junior, junior deacon struggling with his work. Who was uh, it? Do you remember? I don't remember his name, okay. but I do remember the fact that he just had a hard time. It was either it was he didn't take the time to memorize the work or he just couldn't get over the idea of standing up in front of a room of people that that he knew and spoke a lot of people can't get over that fear of public speaking and that's one of the things that, that masonry is real good at it teaches you to be able to stand up in front of a crowd and speak so anyway um i'm watching this guy struggle and um i asked if i could come to one of their practices and they invited me and um, in going through the practice uh, before they started, the, the officer's coach, Jim Nash at the time, uh, yeah, also Jim. a wonderful man and a past master. He's passed on now, um, miss you, Jim, uh, miss you and all the other guys, World War II vet, part of the greatest generation. And he said, who wants to do the first degree proficiency? So I'm a guest and I'm just sitting there and no one's putting their hand up. So finally, I put my hand up because there was like this pregnant silence. And he put me in a chair. He started asking me the questions and he was surprised that I nailed it. Um, but again, my coach made sure that I knew what I was saying and what I was doing. So... Um, Another time and another stated meeting after that, again, Bert, I think his name was, I don't remember his last name, but he, um, he was struggling. And I went over to the officers, I went over to Jim Nash, the officer's coach, 
I said, look, I don't want to cast disparaging remarks against a brother, but I think I could probably do a better job at what he's doing than he's doing. And he said, well, if you want to do be an officer of the lodge, you have to be a member. I said, okay. And they handed me an application and the rest went downhill from there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So we have Jim Nash to blame. Thanks, Jim. <laughs> I don't blame Jim at all. He is, you know, he, he was a great mentor for me. I'm, I'm lucky because I had uh, Jim Nash, I had Avi Argov, um, John, John Abernathy at times. Um, were, Art Phillips. Art Phillips, uh, yeah. yeah, at times. They all were, were, were there to help me and <clears throat> it made the transition very easy. So I became an officer in 93, I think it was. I sat in the junior warden's chair for about, I don't know, not even half a year. And they moved me into the senior deacon's chair. And then we would do rehearsals, but they'd have somebody else do the senior deacon work. And finally, one night at a practice, I said, am I going to do this tomorrow night or is someone else going to do it? And Jim Nash realized what I was saying, he says, no, you're going to do it. So that was my first time in bringing a candidate into the lodge room in a first degree. Um, it was very interesting for me, very uh, moving to be able to go th- to put someone through what I went through and give them a quality entrance, give them a quality, uh, be a quality guide and hopefully make an impression on him like it made an impression on me. So I went through the chairs. Um, senior deacon to junior warden, junior warden on to, you know, anyway, I became master of the lodge in 1997. And 1997 was our 50th anniversary. So I was the 50th master of Palm Springs Lodge, which was an honor to me. Um, we had a rededication or constitution. Um, we put a plaque up on the front of the building that's read 50 years of Freemasonry, 1947, 1997, had the name of the, uh, uh, grandmaster at the time and um it uh ended up getting taken because it was bronze so you know those things happen um after i was master of the lodge a lot of times you know masters of the lodge i heard disappear well i wasn't going to disappear because i could see that my lodge needed help and it was my lodge at that point so you you experienced the same thing uh, that many other lodges experience that once somebody becomes master, once they once they finish their year and become a past master, they disappear. Yeah, you experience yeah. the same thing. And I and I don't understand the, the 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 mindset behind it. And I've had people that are close to me do it, and I still can't understand why they did it. Um, of course, you know uh, they've got the usual excuses. You got to rearrange my sock drawer. I'm washing my hair. Um, you know, my dog ate my homework, the sun got in my eyes, um, whatever it might be, but the lodge needed help because we had World War II vets in the line and I was, you know, like the kid. And um, it, um, it was a very interesting, it was a very good experience for me. I enjoyed it quite a bit. So it kept coming around Yep, after I was master of the lodge and somewhere right about that time, right about the time, I think I became 
think I might have gone through the line again. I think I got recycled up to senior deacon because we consolidated with another lodge during this time from 97 to 2003. And um, we consolidated with another lodge, brought in people who wanted to be in the offices that they weren't prepared for. And um, of course, you know, there's bad blood going back and forth. Uh, they wanted to change the name of Palm Springs Lodge to something like Desert Springs Lodge or something along those lines because of the, the name of their lodge had the word desert in it. So they thought, well, we'll do both of them and it'll make it good. And I, I, I stood up. I was in the senior warden's chair at the time. I remember this. And I said, gentlemen, you know, people come to this lodge from all over the world. And it is, in essence, an international lodge. And when they come to this area and they want to come to Palm Springs Lodge, they're going to look up Palm Springs Lodge. They're not going to look up Desert Springs Lodge. In fact, they won't even put two and two together. So I think that it might be a fatal mistake on a marketing standpoint to change the name of this lodge because it's been Palm Springs Lodge for over 50 years now. So I guess I was the advocate and the catalyst uh, that caused that to, to happen is we kept the name Palm Springs Lodge and we kept our number 693. Um, so anyway, going through there during that six year period from 97 to 03, we started seeing more young men coming to our lodge and wanting to join. And back then, if you could walk in and ask for an application, it was handed to you. Um, it was just the way that they did it. And I was like, Oh, you know, we don't know these guys, but that was their part. That was their process. And that's the way they did it. That was the way it was done. And um, we ended up with some good guys. We initiated some guys that never came back. We put the time in to initiate, pass and raise other guys. And they got their master Mason degree and never came back um, a lot more than you could probably shake a stick at or count on both hands. And, in essence, going to Lodge from the time that I started as an officer through 97 and on, we were what some people might call a degree mill. Um, Monday night practice, Tuesday night degree. The following week, Monday night practice, Tuesday night degree. My wife was a true Masonic widow. We got married while I went after we got married. I was already a Mason and she knew that Monday and Tuesday nights I would be gone. She also knew that sometimes Wednesday, Thursday, I would be gone because we had our officer school of instruction on those days as well. So we'd host it. And then the other two lodges in the or three lodges. In, anyway, the other lodges in the district would host him as well. Um, the high desert wasn't in our district at the time. So it was us and Coachella. And I'm trying to think of the other one. At any rate, um, the uh, officer school, uh, I, I was just, I was gone a lot. And my poor wife, you know, um, I left her at home. We were newlyweds. <laughs> and uh, I was leaving her at home on Monday and Tuesday nights. Um, we had a DMLA chapter. We, I went to the DMLA school uh, in order to be a DMLA dad. I was a rainbow dad. Um, and um, 
just trying to remember all of the things. I became secretary in 2003. And when I became the secretary of the lodge, we still had a printed mailed out trestle board. And like every other lodge, I believe it was hell trying to get articles from the line officers, the pillar officers. You'd ask for it, you'd ask for it, you'd ask, for it. oh yeah, I'll get to it. They never would. And some of these guys were retired, so it's not like they didn't have time. They just didn't do it. There was some drama that went about because of our trestle board. Um, we got through that, of course. And at some point we tried doing a, uh, a district-wide trestle board where all, all of the lodges in the district put articles in. And again, you know, there was no incentive for people to do that. Uh, we had Palm Springs Lodge actually created a schools out party for the children that were then living at the Masonic home in Cabina. Um, there's a water park in Palm Springs. It's now not Soak City, but uh, it's wet rides. And we would bring the kids that behaved themselves during the school year, based on what their counselor said, out to this water park. And we would pay their admission for the day and we would buy them lunch. So it was a total party for them and they enjoyed it. We, and it was very rewarding to do um, because we, we were doing something that I always felt that Mesa should do, which is giving back to a community at, in some way, shape or form. So back to secretary in 03, that was part of my duties was to take over the water park was also my duties to collect the trestle boards, articles. It was also my duty to print and mail out all the dues notices and then print and mail out all the dues receipts. And, and there, was, there was a point at one time where I thought, well, maybe I could ask for help. Well, the help that I got wouldn't do it the way that I wanted it done. I tried to set it up and they just, couldn't follow it for whatever reason, like herding cats. So I took it back and I did it my, by myself for years. Um, probably a, for eight years, I did it that way. And then 2011, um, I had some personal issues. Um, I burned out. I needed to take a break and I went away. And I did not want to be that past master that went away, but um, I just, I had to go away. I think it was for the benefit of the lodge as well as me. Now, and now let me pause you right there because you got into um, the administration of the lodge, which a lot of people despise. They, I, I mean, they come to lodge, they're enamored by whatever, uh, image they have of what happens behind closed doors and for a lot of lodges that that does i mean that, these uh, special things do happen uh, but, but that's because the members have a different mentality and, and they got together and they decided that this is the way we're going to handle it but we also know that there's there's the administrative side so what was the big difference for you go, going through that administrative um struggle that you're talking about you know you're your secretary, um, you have to collect trestle boards. You have to, um, you're dealing with dues memberships and, and the way it was done back then, the help wasn't there. 
um, you know, frustrations begin to build. So what was the difference? What, what are some of the big differences between, um, not that there maybe is any, uh, now that you're talking about it, me being secretary of a lodge, but uh, the, what were some of the big differences in philosophy from when you came in and you were going through all that to when we came back in 2015 to help the lodge again and the way we handled that, that administrative side? Well, the, I, I, the philosophy of the lodge did a complete 180. Things changed dramatically. No more handing out of applications. Um, we vetted our, our candidates. On the administrative side, um, I actually asked for help and got it. And in doing that, the way I set it up was I created a production line, starting with one person takes a label, puts it on an envelope, make sure that, and then they write in the amount that the person owes and dues. And then they give it to the next person who puts it in an envelope and they put this, make sure that it's got the same label on it. And then the next guy would put a stamp on it. And then the last guy would verify everything before we put it in the outbound stack. So something that would take me, I'm gonna say a good 10 man hours doing by myself was done in 45 minutes. And it was done right. And I was blown away and I was grateful because that took a big load off of me because I used to sit at home and watch TV with my wife working on a lot of stuff. So not only was I gone Monday and Tuesday and possibly Wednesday or Thursday, but I was also bringing work home with me that needed to be done. So even when I was there, sometimes I really wasn't really there because I was focusing on doing all of the things that needed to be done as well. Uh, philosophically, our lodge was, well, we had basically, I won't call it a progressive line because you did have to prove up, but we did have, um, we did have guys that had put in the work and prior to 2015, somewhere between 12 and 15, um, certain members of the fraternity, our, our lodge, people that we raised, Caesar and I, um, became um, part of what they called a coup. Uh, they chased line officers out. They turned it into their what they believed that the lodge should be, and did some uh, did some things that most lodges probably have experienced as far as when it comes to money. So we went through all that. We came back. We cleaned house. Um, we had the secretary was appointed by the then sitting grandmaster Russ Charbonia, um, and I offered assistance several times because I know how overwhelming it can be when you're the secretary and nobody's offering you any training. So, um, but he, he said, oh no, I got it, I got it. Well, found out that he didn't have it. In fact, turned out that he really didn't have it to the point of we had no records for over four years because the previous secretary didn't keep records either. There were no minutes. There was nothing. Well, uh, they were lost. Remember that? But um, uh, several brother, several brother came in uh, to help out with that. 
and in in many different capacities. And yes, you you know I was there for that uh, meeting when the past grandmaster came down. And not to uh, air out dirty laundry, but th- these things happen, brethren. For those of you listening, th- these things happen when we stop being vigilant, when we're apathetic and complacent, and we just allow things to happen. Next thing you know, you have the grandmaster sitting down at your stated meeting, and you don't know which way it's going to go um, with his decision because his decision would be final. So if he decides to let you continue to function as a lodge, then you will. If he decides to pull your charter, that's it. It's over. And from our understanding, if that happens, it's very difficult to ever get a charter back. So that's what Brother Bear is, is referring to. But there are many brothers that, w- that were pivotal uh, in helping the a Palm Springs Lodge get back on its feet and be- begin to become a, a beacon of light once again in Freemasonry, you know, and, and, and in our community uh, overall. So, so you saw a shift. You saw uh, or you felt it, but at, but at what point, because I remember, uh, you know, we, we, we drive every day back and forth. I mean, every week, I either I'd go pick you up or you'd go pick me up. So we had a lot of time to talk, bounce ideas off, our, uh, off, our, off ourselves. And that's when you begin to see, like for myself, how Freemasonry in the past was practiced. And then how we were trying to implement, and not only trying, but doing it, implement a different way. I mean, it's still Freemasonry, but the mentality and the philosophy and the flow was completely different to where when other members finally started coming back, they saw an immediate change. And the members that were there during that transition, when they felt the intensity, at first they were all for it. But then when they felt the intensity and then that we were holding them accountable, they began to drop off one by one, you know, and accountable for what? Well, accountable for things like, so did you memorize your part for the third degree? Uh, Mm -hmm. So did you come prepared for the state of meeting to give your, your, you know, your um, Masonic education, you know, Mm -hmm. your one minute, two minute Masonic education? Uh, so did you come prepared? How come you're not wearing a suit, like coat and tie, like we said, all these little things that you're talking about? So that's what I'm referring to when, when, when I'm talking about a, a change in philosophy. And you mentioned some things like, number one, we just didn't hand out applications. But the way things were done back then is what I came into in 2001. And what I can tell you is that there was no Masonic education at all zero zilch right and and so for those members god rest their souls most of them are have gone to the great lodge above freemasonry was just state of meetings and degree work that was it and our stated meetings prior to 2015 could be marathons about arguing over how are you going to pay back the five dollars that you want to use to spend on this and i'm serious about the five dollars but our our treasurer was very vigilant about protecting the lodge money so i can't blame him but i you know i can at times 
point the finger at the master for allowing things like that to just continue on and on and on. And then someone would want to stand up and say something and they'd ramble and they really had, they just wanted to say something. The philosophy changed, the way we did things changed. We read the eight steps to excellence. We started practicing, I think three or four of the steps. Mm -hmm. We picked out three or four of them. I can name, I can name three of them off the top of my head. Dress your best for lodge. The lodge should have meals that are five star as I call them and be willing to pay for it. And excellence in ritual floor, ritual work for degrees. Uh, one of the things Caesar was master at the time, he and I talked, as he said, quite frequently, one of the things that he and I decided was, is that how do we make our stated meeting the meeting you do not want to miss? And what we did is we took my experiences and then Caesar's ideas and we put them together and we came up with this. Um, any lodge that has any business in California you can get your business done in less in 15 minutes or less. So if you have an hour set aside for your stated meeting, which is what most people are willing to sit through, you get the business done in 15 minutes, you have 45 minutes left where you can actually have Masonic education. And the way that Caesar had set up the Masonic education in the lodge, because it was the master's duty, was he would come up with a topic and then he'd open the floor. So rather than stand up a worshipful master and do all of the things that you got to do, it was an open forum and people were sharing ideas. We had uh, some of our brothers from Canada actually come back. They hadn't been around for a while and they're watching what we're doing. And after their first time back, they said, I, I really like what you guys are doing here. I want to see this happen in my lodge at home in Canada. Mm -hmm. So we kind of had a trickle down, I believe I, also believe that we were probably one of the first, well, if not the first, one of the first lodges in the state of California that started vetting their, their applicants. We said, if you want to, if you want to be a member of our lodge, you need to get a, to know us and we need to know, get to know you. Yeah. And we put a six month minimum cap on that. And we told people who came in. I think, um, yeah, not to cut you off, uh, they're worshipful, but um, you had Prometheus Lodge and some other lodges that were already observant, you know, the title observant lodges in California that had been doing that for, you know, ever since observing the craft came out, which is in 2010. Okay. So uh, they used it. So we, we were, I mean, if there's 330 lodges or something I like got in California, you can guarantee that you might've had 30 doing this. And we were one of the 30 actually waiting you know the six to 12 months to vet vet someone so and and i'd like to uh, uh clarify something right here right now and that is the uh, ideas that jeff is talking about was a result of many conversations i had with many brethren uh some of them who you know i miss a, a lot uh, they're not attending lodge anymore but um they were actually absolutely pivotal you know for me to understand what, what, how Freemasonry is being viewed by someone coming in to the fraternity. And so these conversations, what, what, what began to happen at Lodge was, was the manifestation of these many conversations. 
you know, it was just me going around talking, they, they going around talking. And then, and then the conversation that was inspired by it, whether it was by Jeff Bear or, or Jeff Gibson or Ted Parker, or Dave Matthews or Ruben Leja or any one of these pivotal players that came in to help us at this time when the lodge needed us most, these were the conversations because there were things that they came up with or that you came up with that that wasn't me you know that was you guys and it just from that point on it was just a matter of okay this is within the plan of what we're doing let's implement it let's try to implement it and granted there were things that we still haven't implemented yet um we get caught up in 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 certain things you know uh, and and we lose sight of other things but a lot of them we did. And so you were, you were part of that. And that's why the question, my question continues to be to you. What must have that have been like to someone like you? Because there comes a point in our lives where we become entrenched in the way we see things and the way we want to do things. But yet here we are being introduced to this way of doing things, with, which wasn't radical, but it was different, right? Very different very different how in fact well in fact now that you say that when i became a mason and then i became an officer there was no masonic education so for me i always thought well your masonic education is reading a random book here or there um but mostly learning the ritual floor work learning the ritual spoken word learning how to move about the lodge, how to move a candidate about the lodge, and then learn how to teach people how to do those things. So we were lucky, Caesar and I both were lucky in that because we were churning out so many degrees, we got a lot of experience in doing degrees. And Caesar had a lot of the same mentors with the ritual work that I had. So going into our 2015 time, we both were on the same page when it came to the ritual and the ritual floor work. Um, <clears throat> then we started having Masonic education at every meeting. We started having uh, the Trivium discussion group as a community outreach. We started having um, social time. We started having card games. We started attending different lodges and encouraging them to also become more social because our fraternity actually, in some cases, some people would deem it as a social club. In fact, that's the name that Grand Lodge gave it during COVID, we're a social club. And quite frankly, in my opinion, we are not a social club. We are a fraternity that takes care of our brothers and getting to know these guys is part of it. So the difference between just learning what goes on in the lodge room as opposed to learning what everybody's thinking based on the topics that we're, been, we're putting in front of them during Masonic education at the state of meeting night, night and day. Uh, and and it, was, it was received very well. Now, we also put together a dress code, <laughs> dress your best for lodge. Some of us don't mind putting on a suit. Other people just can't can't stand it and some people didn't own a suit so the ones that didn't own a suit we said look it says dress your best if that means you can put on a shirt and tie and a pair of slacks that's fine but and don't feel like you're you're not 
you know, part of the crowd because you are. Um, to to institute something like that, though, we met a lot of resistance, a lot of resistance, and people would complain because it's Palm Springs after all, and it's a hundred and oh my god at night during the summertime in the stated meetings, and people would complain because maybe the air conditioners were overloaded, or it was a little too warm in the lodge, or it didn't get cold enough in the lodge, or it was too cold in the lodge, and they would complain. And I would say, go out in our lobby and take a look at the photograph of our founding members, because they all wore suits all the time to lodge. They wore a jacket and tie and slacks, and they didn't have air conditioning in 1947. So- So there was a standard. There, there was, was a standard, standard that we are, and we could easily see that there was a standard from uh, the, our founding members, uh, you know, our charter members of our lives. Now, I want to go back to something because you just touched upon something that has met, been met with a lot of resistance and has been controversial. And, it, and overall, it is little understood, I believe, unless you begin to spend time practicing it. And you said, trivium and then you said as our charitable contribution to our community <clears throat> and part of the reason why uh, we say it that way is because when it's been my experience and yours too because it's just, you know you're you're a member of the same lodge uh, whenever we would get together and we'd start to brainstorm and we started, someone eventually had to throw out the idea. Well, what are we going to do for the community? How are we helping the community? And then, and then, bam. Well, let's have a pancake breakfast. Let's have, you know, all these. And I didn't know anything about that. Later on, you know, as I, I got, I had more experience in, in the fraternity. I began to read these things and it was like, it became like a joke. You know, it, it became so here we are, we come back and uh, maybe we should do a podcast of just that, you know, when 2015 and then what we did and successes and failures and what have you. But one of the things we included was the trivium. Now, the trivium, I want you to share with us what your experience with the trivium was okay. and how, and how your and how your uh, perspective changed over time, because you were not a believer and you, maybe you didn't understand it. I don't know. Why don't you share that with us? Okay. So my original opinion of the trivium was, I felt that it was a good way to reach out and provide a service to our community because you, we were holding monthly sessions on critical thinking and critical thinking skills. And then also, you know, teaching people at a college level things that that were far and above the things that you're normally taught in school. Personally, I felt that the uh, the sessions I did I didn't have to go to them. I didn't apply to me because I've always either been learning or teaching the intricacies of the ritual rod and floor work, along with the giving and memorizing of ritual officers, their stations, their officers' lectures, prayers, just all of those things. And that was my way of providing a service to my lodge. Now, that does, didn't do any good for the community. So 
after I actively, and I use the word actively underlined, started attending sessions. Um, what does example, that mean though? Well, there, there was an evening where one of our rehearsals went better than I had planned and it ended earlier than usual. So I sat in on a session and what I believe so, it was centered on was human pause, nature. Pause, pause. Uh, mm -hmm. So you're, what you're saying is that you and the officers were having a rehearsal in the lodge room while there was an active trivium discussion group happening right. in the dining hall. Right. Okay, go. Okay, so again, I'm saying that I actively attended. Being actively attending is like active listening. You, you are paying attention. You're actually engaged in what's going on. And I sat in on this session and I thought it might have, I, I think it might have been around human behavior, which is fascinating for me. Um, I've always been interested in the psychology of humans, but I also like to study the interaction between people and how they interact. There were some talking points that I brought up during this conversation, and that's really what the trivium is, is a conversation and the way that it's been structured for our lodge. And um, I was really surprised by some of the questions and the type of questions I was getting from not only our members, but also people that weren't Masons. And um, generally the questions revolved around how and why and what, where of my of my part came into being, came to, came to, came, came into it. Um, I enjoy intellectual challenge. I welcome it for several reasons. Uh, it makes me give well thought out answers. It allows me to sh someone else to share their experience and reasoning, which leads me to asking pointed questions. So the who, what, when, where, why, and how was, was the, was the catalyst that made me want to start attending uh, the triviums a little bit more frequently and to actually engage rather than just sit there and be a lump in a chair. So, but this took you a little bit because you attended, you attended a few. I remember because uh, uh, Matt Jackson would be uh, keystoning it. And, uh, and the keystone, by the way, is a moderator, but you know, we decided, decided to Masonicize it. If that is even a word and apply some, some masonisms you know to a regular socratic discussion group where you're going to have a moderator where we call them the keystone but uh i remember you sat on you sat on on many of those so i'm wondering if you remember how many of these that it finally take you because a lot of the members will sit in but they just kind of tune out you know they just want uh, you know whatever but i don't think they're fully realizing what's happening right yeah, and there there are there are some guys that actually you know they they would out of curiosity or because they didn't want to go home to the wife I don't know yeah. uh, would sit in <laughs> and they started asking questions and making comments that I never would think possible coming from that individual mm -hmm. and so it gave me a, again it gave me more of a look at how people interact with one another and what you may perceive someone to be isn't always, perception isn't always, it, it is. I mean, they say if it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it must be a duck. And I always counter that with sometimes a duck is not a duck mm. because it just isn't. So 
I, I don't remember how many sessions I attended and then COVID came along and we couldn't have in-person meetings anymore. So it but, transferred. But, be, but before we get into that one, uh, Jeff, okay. because that, that is another important part of your experience with the Trivium, which you're about to explain. You did mention that when you were engaged, all of a sudden the Trivium changed for you because you asked a question and then all of a sudden they began to engage you and you felt like your question mattered. I forgot how you put it, but it was mm -hmm. something that just triggered you. It changed your perspective on the trivium. You know, can you, can you get into that a little bit? You yeah, kind it, of were right now. Yeah. The, the question, the questions or, or actually the opinions that I shared at first, um, caused some of these questions that I was, was being given. And then my response to those questions was, was listened to and then possibly followed up with another question, with another answer, et cetera, et cetera, and so on. So in being engaged, I was engaged in the conversation that was going on. That's one. Two, the, 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 the method of the questions being asked and, and the way that they were asked engaged me intellectually because it gave me the opportunity to, to listen to what they had to say and listen to what their question is. Because sometimes someone will ask you a question and it'll lead you down a path that you hadn't even intended on going on, but it just happens that way. So a lot of times when people hear the trivium, they think, oh my God, it's that book and it's you know this and that. And it's like, the way that the way that it was set up for our lodge and the way that we did it, it was set up to be more of a conversation and it was set up to be more of a sharing of ideas. And uh, there's obviously, you know, topics and you'd start out with something and you would ask a question or two questions and then you would go through those questions and dissect them, so to speak. And then it would be brought back around to the fraternity. Why are we talking about this tonight? because All Hallows' Eve wasn't always just Halloween. It had things to do with our fraternity and had things to do with the occult and all of those <laughs> things. So there, there, there's just, the questions again, as they were asked to me, were engaging, it challenged me, it made me think. And sometimes you have a conversation with someone and you can tell that they're just waiting for you to stop talking so that he can ask you the next question. They're not really listening to what you're saying. And that's part of my fun is, is to, to study human nature and the way that people interact. Um, so now I, COVID hits. Does, does that answer your question? Yes. Okay. Yes. So now COVID hits, you said, and, yeah. and we're still somewhere... active with the trivium. Right, we're, we're still doing Trivium and we're doing it on Zoom because it was the only way we could do it. Mm. And for whatever reason, I don't remember exactly who or how or why, but um, people were not volunteering to step up and be the moderator, the keystone. So I talked to Caesar and I, you know, I said, look, um, I would like to give this a shot because I think it's a valuable thing. And I think that uh, in order to keep people engaged, it needs to continue on. So he said, sure, go ahead. 
so sometime, I think it was around August of 2020, um, I volunteered and I would email out the invitations and the reminders along with the link uh, to several people, including members of our lodge and other lodges and non-members alike. Um, our first, my first trivium as a keystone, my first trivium meeting, I went in cold. I'm, I'm totally unprepared without much thought about a topic or having information available to keep the conversation alive. Even, yeah, even after I told you, right? It's like, hey, yeah. this is what you got to yeah. do. You still went in cold. <laughs> no, I, I don't remember the number of people were there. But I do remember that it was a very lively and engaging evening and everybody enjoy, enjoyed themselves. Um, it encouraged me that it was an encouragement for me to continue to volunteer to host. And even though I'm in Tennessee and I'm two hours ahead of you over there on the left coast, the time difference didn't make a difference to me because I was contributing to my lodge. I was trying to help out. I was contributing to my community that I had lived in where I had been. Um, and we had members and prospects, remember? We, we, we had yeah. members of the community as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I shared my enthusiasm after my first thing with Caesar, and Caesar offered, of course, some tips and ideas again, and what I should be doing. And so we had a good conversation about that. And at that point, I said, okay, I'm gonna find a topic. And then I'm going to research it because I want to be able to keep this conversation going. Um, I bounced a lot of ideas off of Caesar, off of you, Caesar. Um, you're very helpful in that. Uh, I give you four questions that I thought might be of interest to people. And um, you would help me pick out the, the one that you thought might be the most interesting um we were coming close to election so i started picking topics that were about things that might make people uncomfortable because it the questions were you know things like what is freedom is freedom free responsibility you know are we truly responsible um i'm just naming these or even uh, even when covid hit remember we, we what is covid yeah we, yeah, we had that what is a COVID-19 and and um there are parameters guys for those for those of you listening there are parameters there are rules we sit down so this this is not a uh shout you down you know you pick one side no this is an exploration of ideas it's not a it's a discussion not a debate so I like to put that out there but you're right I remember those times and yeah we're, we got close to election and I think um I think um one of the questions was are our elections even necessary anymore elections do your votes count was it, do your, yeah does your vote count um you know does does the governor have the power to do what he was doing you know when the shutdown orders and you know they're very and you can see it from the faces and expressions on people it was uncomfortable but it's it's meant it's meant to do that this type of discussion group is meant to challenge your own biases and prejudices so you know, I'm glad you noticed that. So the going backwards here, um, probably should have described the ground rules for the for a trivium uh, discussion. And the ground rules are pretty simple. As Caesar said, it's it's not a debate. 
It's a conversation. Um, there is no shouting someone down. There is no arguing with someone. There is no belittling of anyone. It is, I like to call what I call a safe space, a place where you can share your thoughts and your feelings with people and know that people are going to listen and actually try to engage themselves in where you're coming from. Um, some of the, some, one of the things that surprised me was if I started these uh, picking topics was the amount of people that were in attendance because I was having almost as many people on Zoom attend these as we were having in when we were doing it live in the lodge. It tapered down a little bit as the questions got tougher. <laughs> I think, you know, the questions get tougher as we go along, but they did. I, I think my, my last trivium that I did was hypocrisy. Are, are we all hypocrites? And it was interesting to see what people had to say. When I asked the question, does your vote really count? Nobody wanted to say anything. Nobody wanted to say anything. So I had to jump in and interact first and start the ball. Once the ball started, the floodgates over. Yeah, sometimes you have to prime pump it because it's not that people don't want to respond. It's that they're trying to figure out how to respond. Mm -hmm. And holding these discussion groups, I mean, if you were to ask me, hey, do you think all lodges should be doing this? Yeah, absolutely. Will all lodges do it? No, um, because of the amount of work it requires. And not physical work, mental work. You, you have to be prepared to defend whatever statement you're about to make, because that's what the discussion group is built around. So if you're gonna say whatever you're gonna say, be prepared to be peppered by 10, 15 people that are there, who, what, when, why, where, how, um, can you, can you uh, uh, expound on that? Can you tell me why you're saying that? Why do you believe that? How did you come up with this? And it's not a, in a negative way we're just trying to understand so when when the discussion group began to shrink down is it was at the height of the cooties the cooties pandemic and so the questions that we were asking were mostly circulating around what was going on and these questions were very very uncomfortable where people began to drop off because I believe they didn't want to be challenged anymore as far as who's, whose fault is this? You know, things like that. So not trying, okay. So the trivium really- Interesting, the, interesting yes. you would say that because yeah. even though we might've been talking about freedom, it did go back to COVID. Yeah. And even though we were talking about elections, it's still- COVID came up in there somewhere, the yeah. cooties, as you like to call it. Yeah. Um, here's the bottom line for me with the Trivium. After I read the book and I learned to apply the lessons, I found myself listening to the pundits in the box and the politicians in my box and taking what they're saying apart. Uh, one of my favorite ones is if we don't do this and we don't do that, we're all going to die. Mm -hmm. And I kind of smiled and I, Caesar and I were talking about this individually together. And I, and I said, who said that? The person that said that isn't lying. We are all going to die. Mm -hmm. It's the truth. 
so they can say that with conviction. So anyway, back to the bottom line. The trivia, it doesn't teach just critical thinking. It also, also it covers three of the liberal arts, grammar, rhetoric, and logic. Right. And these are subjects we're encouraged to study in our lectures in Freemasonry. So bringing it back to the fraternity, that's part of the reason we were doing it was because we could bring it back to the fraternity and why we were talking about what we were talking about. Also during this period of time, pre-COVID and, and during the cooties, I like, I like that word cooties, pre-cooties and <laughs> prior to, and post-cooties, so to speak, um, we were doing an awful lot of work and we didn't have a lot of participation. And at one point, um, Caesar and I, we, we decided that, you know, we were going to go talk to the inspector and we were going to go talk to the uh, district inspector and the, uh, what was Vic, what's Vic's title? What was he? AGL. AGL, the assistant grand lecturer. And we told him, we said, look, you know, guys, we're getting tired. And, you know, this is, you know, it's, you know, the 80-20 rule, 80% of the work gets done by 20% of the people. And their response to that was a typical playbook, I believe. And that, that was, well, you need to stop vetting your, your candidates and you just need to open the floodgates. And they said, with the number of people that you have showing up for the trivium, you should be able to be getting at least five candidates out of that a month. And my response. Yeah, was yeah because we were averaging, we were averaging 15 to 20 uh, yeah. people at the trivium and 15 of them were prospects. Right. And when, <laughs> so, yeah. when, when uh, they said, you need to open up the floodgates and you need to do this and, you know, then fall back on the way things used to be done before anybody could say anything, I spoke right up and I said, that's not going to fly. And the reason it's not going to fly is because the people that have waited the period of time that we set aside for them to have to get an application would not stand for it. I think we said, we're not going to stop guarding the Westgate. I think that's, right. how, that's how we said it. Yeah. So I even said that the, the, the number of people that actually hung around long enough to want to ask for an application were a byproduct of the trivium. They weren't the product of the trivium. They weren't the guy, that wasn't what we set out to do was to bring in candidates. What we did was we set out to provide something to our community that gave them more. And, and also something that I didn't mention is, is that in the live sessions and the, and the, and the Zoom meetings, it wasn't just for Masons. It's like Caesar said, we had non-Masons there. We had fathers there who had their children with them. We had uh, women in, we had- Visiting girls. brothers. Big pardon? Visiting brethren from other lodges. Visiting brothers, yeah. yeah. We had people from across the United States wanting to punch in. Yeah. And they, yeah. And they would join So when we were in Zoom. So it was a matter of providing something that wasn't just having a pancake breakfast or donating $100 to the police department so they can get a vest for a police dog. Um, to me, and I've said this several times to Caesar and other people who will hear it, it's really easy to write a check and say, I did something good. It's real easy to do that. It's work when you provide something that we were providing and, and, and continue to provide.
because I, I know that the trivium continues in Palm Springs. It does. And um, as a matter of fact, <coughs> we were after the installation, which, which was um, small compared to what we're, we're used to. Uh, there was quite a number of prospects. And one of the first questions was, when is the next trivium discussion session? <clears throat> because um, when you ask them, why are they interested in, in continuing the discussion group? They say they really, really enjoy the challenge that it has brought to them. They really enjoy the exploration of ideas. They really enjoy the format that uh, has been created. And more than that, they believe that that's what some of we're supposed to be doing as Masons is exploring ideas. It's interesting. It's an interesting little, it's, it's niche. I know, I know that a lot of people don't understand it. And like I said, I'm probably, I should begin to make a few of these podcast episodes dedicated just to the trivium and discussing it. Because one of the things was what, what Jeff just said was that the trivium was created as our charitable contribution to the community. In other words, it doesn't have to happen at Lodge, but it's more intimate when it happens at Lodge, but we can go anywhere and provide this discussion group once a month as our charitable contribution to the community because there isn't enough critical discussions happening on important topics. There, nobody is providing a platform like this. And once you begin to uh, practice it, and you begin to become conversant with it, now you take it back to your house. You, make it, you take it back to your place of work. You take it back to school. And who did that? Well, we did. It's coming out of, and, and, and yeah, um, prospects are a byproduct. That was never our intention uh, to bring in members through the trivium, and it still isn't, but it continues to be a byproduct. Yeah, and to, 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 to make that string go a little bit longer, you take it home with you, you share it with your family, your children take it to school, they share it with other people, you share it with your neighborhood, you share it with your, your city, you share it with your community, you share it at your church, all of these different ways that it can be shared. And the more people that we can, we can reach and get them to understand that there is a way where you can have a conversation with someone who might not agree with, with you 100% and not have it turn into a screaming match. Um, I just wanted to say that some of the lessons I learned by applying the trivium to the ritual lectures and masonry in general uh, is, you know, I've said it before, anyone can learn and recite one of our ritual lectures. And memorizing the words and reciting them without understanding the words is a completely different message. You're not conveying anything. And I've found through my 30 plus years as a Mason in listening to others recite the ritual lecture, lectures that a few people made them conversational. When I say using them conversationally, what I'm saying is, is that you, you learn to make the ritual lectures conversational. You, you're, you have the attention of the candidate, but you also learn for yourself some of the ideas and ideals of the fraternity. By using grammar, rhetoric, and logic, this helps you 
find words in that lecture and how to give the right inflection to paint a picture with your words. When you can get a candidate engaged this way by helping his mind picture the concepts that you're trying to give them in that ritual lecture, then hopefully in their mind's eye, you're describing the images that they're seeing. The candidates then fully invested in that lecture and by having them fully invested in that lecture, they walk away with more than, boy, that was boring. Well, oh, when, you, when you apply the trivium to what you're saying, Jeff, it opens up a whole new world as to why we're saying what we're saying and why we're doing, what, why the movements, why do you have to stand here? <clears throat> why, why um, once you stood there, why did you receive this? Because the grammar and the logic and the rhetoric is applied to that now. And it, in, until, you, until you practice it, we can describe it all we want, but until you practice it, put it into practice, what we're saying, um, can you see the full power of the Trivium discussion group? Uh, one of those discussion groups, we, the question was, what is, a secret and man that sparked all kinds you know are there good secrets and are there bad secrets that sparked sparked all kinds of conversation and you know what we we dedicate two hours to it and we were still and we take a break you know at the hour mark we take a break after the second hour we were still going strong and so we ended the session, and now we, we fellowship, right? And we, uh, we share some libations. If we want to go outside and have a cigar, we do that. And this conversation was still being had. It never ended. And we never had consensus. And everybody was okay with that. But we had a greater understanding of what everybody thought when the question was put on the table what is a secret now talking about the trivium and talking about what it you know how it's changed your perspective and you believe it's a good thing right you believe that lodges should implement this in uh you, you know in some in some capacity or or what do you think about that i mean because i know it's a challenge it, it is a challenging practice well first of all i think that it's going to take special people to, to do it. Do I think that every lodge should do it? No, mm. I don't. Because there are some lodges where I'm going to put it in a way that hopefully will be politically correct. They don't have the wherewithal to, to study the book, study the concepts, realize that it is masonry that you're working on, and then convey that to your community. Now, if you can, if you can do that, if you if you have brothers in your lodge that can 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 do that, then then I strongly suggest that you do it, because you probably uh, will will get the same byproduct that we had. Interestingly, we never advertised this. We talked about maybe putting cards in the colleges around us and putting them on the campuses and all of those things. We never advertised this. It was all done by word of mouth. And the people that showed up 
were friends of a friend of a friend at some point. So to have 18, 20 guys there and only three or five of them are Masons, you got to be doing something right. <laughs> now let's apply, uh, let's apply the, the trivium a little bit here. And, and let me ask you a question. And I think we've, I think we've talked about it a little bit, you know, over the years, maybe not because everybody has their niche in, in Freemasonry. They do. Everybody has their particular area that they like, but this right here, I think everybody thinks about that's a Mason. So do you, do you have a theory of your own personal theory of the origins of Freemasonry? Yeah, I do. Um, interesting that you would ask that question because mm. we we have had this conversation several times okay um, i'm going to go to the origins of masonry and the templar conspiracy because if someone was to google freemasonry who's not a member of the fraternity and is listening to this you're going to find that you're going to be inundated with all kinds of conspiracies Mm -hmm. We're Satan worshipers. We influence the leaders of countries. We control the economics of the world. We and we we call the shots. Okay, so that's all true. Okay, I'm kidding. Um, the <laughs> truth is, if we were a secret society, then we probably wouldn't be wearing a ring or put a square and compass on our building or our car. So many believe, many people, I think, believe that masonry, masons anyway, believe that it began from the workings of the Knights Templar, or maybe it was the opposite. If you've read Born in Blood, you'll understand why I'm saying what I'm saying. You'll, you might see where this Templar conspiracy had, might have originated. Um, it's my opinion that we really don't know for sure. Um, I've read and heard speculations that um, the Templars escaped to Scotland after the arrest and imprisonment happened on Friday, October 13th, 1307. I believe this is why Friday the 13th is considered an unlucky day. But I've heard firsthand from a brother in Scotland that his lodge is the first Masonic lodge and has documents dating all the way back into the 1300s. The name of the lodge is Mother Kilwinning, and its lodge number is Z zero. Um, it's said that a Templar by the name of St. Clair from the St. Clair, Clair family escaped to Scotland. He changed his name to Sinclair. Um, there have been discoveries on Oak Island that they found a lead symbol they thought at first was a cross, but it turned out to be a rendering of a Greek goddess. And that was dated back to the 1300s. It was mined from a lead mine in the south of France. Those are facts. Those are things that actually happened. Um, I can back it up with seeing pictures of the dungeons in France where the Templars were being held and they carved this image into the sandstone on the side of the buildings. So some of these might be coincidence, but you, I think um, you mentioned you mentioned a conspiracy. Yeah, because when you when you use that word, I mean, if we're going to apply a little bit of trivium here, grammar, mm -hmm. logic and rhetoric. <clears throat> and when you say, excuse me, um, anybody says the word conspiracy, they whoever 
intended this has achieved success. We have. And that is when you hear the word conspiracy, we have been conditioned to believe that that person that's expounding that conspiracy theory is a quack. No credibility. He believes in crazy shit. And therefore, I don't have to listen to anything that's going to come out of his mouth because that's a conspiracy and it's unproven. So I just lost all my credibility. So we have to, if we were in a trivium discussion group, we would say, where did the word conspiracy come from? Who, at what point did the word conspiracy change into the meaning that we have now? Because there was a point in history where the word conspiracy did not mean you're a quack. You believe in aliens and lizard people and you have a little lizard brain. It meant, oh, like the Julius Caesar plot conspiracy to kill Julius Caesar, like that, that kind of conspiracy. That's what it meant. So this is some of the power of the trivium that we're talking about when it comes to applying the trivium and breaking down a word. Because you said, you know, the conspiracy theories and this and that. Well, you have to break down words that trigger you. Where did it come from? So, okay, you, you have a, a okay, it's, it's, tied, it's tied to the Knights Templars, you know, in, in your view. It's tied to um, the 1300s. Something happened. And then, yeah, John J. Robinson and Born in Blood. Uh, that's one of my favorite books. A lot of people's favorite books, by the way. Now, let me switch gears on you <clears throat> and talk about our lodge. Our lodge is 75 years old. And I've mentioned this to other brothers. They may think you're a quack or whatever, but, you know, when you're there alone and the lights are off, right, there's an eerie feeling that someone's there. Have you ever had that feeling that, you know, hey, you're there by yourself, you turn off the lights, and all of a sudden, whoa, is there someone here beside me, you know, with me? There's nobody here, but is there somebody here? You know, is there, is there something to that? Have you ever felt that? You mean like the hairs in the back of my neck standing up and that kind right. of stuff? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's been a couple of times where I've been creeped out being in the lodge room and having the lights out. There's been a couple of times that, that I got creeped out. But then I have to remember that that lodge was built by men that were, I don't want to say altruistic, but I believe that they had good and the best of intentions. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that uh, the building is, well, the building does sit on Indian land and still sits within the inside the confines of a sovereign nation. Mm -hmm. But if there was any spirit there, I would imagine that it would be a lot older than the age of our lodge. So yeah, I've, I've had the heebie-jeebies or as they, as the, uh, as the Osborne say, the bougie woogies, um, where it's like, and, but it, it, 
I always go back to the idea that even though I'm having that feeling, I don't need to be afraid because I know that I have God on my side. And because I have God on my side, I'm a child of God, then I, I don't need to be afraid of that. I don't need to be afraid of a lot of things. Um, one of the things I don't think Masons fear at all is death. Um, we're taught a completely different concept when it comes to death. But, you know, um, there, there have been times where I walk into the building and I'm the only person there and there's no lights on and there's a door open at the other end of the building with a light on. It's like, well, who did that? Because when I left here, I turned off all the lights and closed all the doors. <laughs> well, I wasn't the only person with a key to the building. So yeah. obviously somebody else. Somebody did. else did. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Here, here's another one for you. Without going into detail, which one of the three degrees is your favorite one? Can I change it to the most important one? No. Which one of them is your favorite one first? Which is maybe one and the same, right? Which is the most important to you would be, you know, that's, yeah, it's your favorite. Okay. Yeah. My favorite, my favorite degree is the first degree. Yeah. Without going into any detail that perfect. Perfect. Now, when you were an officer and, uh, you know, you were going to, uh, you were getting ready to do a degree, whatever role you were playing. Did, did you have any uh, ritual? You know, athletes have, and I and I had as an athlete, as a baseball player, I had pregame rituals. Certain way you put on your shoes, certain way you put on your socks, you know, this leg first. And before I knew it, somewhere along the line for us, you know, because there, there is, you know, through through the sport world, the sporting world, that is called superstitious. And we do become superstitious. But there was a pregame ritual is what I'm driving at. Did you have, did you have any pre-ritual ritual to get you prepared for that degree that night? You know, that, that would get you in the right mindset that, you know, that maybe you can share with the listeners so they can take that with them and, and maybe help them. My, my, pre-game ritual consisted of confirming that I knew the ritual. Um, I'll give you an example. One night I was driving home from LA and um, it actually was the first night I was going to deliver the master's lecture in the first degree. And I wanted to make sure that I nailed that bad boy because that's just the way I was taught. I looked at my fuel gauge and I thought, okay, well, I need to stop for gas somewhere along the line. Well, I got so engrossed in going through that lecture, I don't know how many times, that all of a sudden I am out in the middle of nowhere in the desert and I'm running out of gas. And I'm in a tuxedo. <laughs> and I can't change the, you know, I can't do anything about it because there's no gas stations. So I called the uh, I called someone at the lodge and said, this is where I'm at and I'm going to get help here real fast. So don't start without me. So the car, it was a company car. So I could, I could call for backup, so to speak. And guy brought five gallons of gas and put it in the tank, et cetera, et cetera. And as you're walking away, I looked down and the right rear tire is flat. <laughs> 
And I say, hey, buddy, you want to make a little more money? He goes, sure. I said, well, I need that tire change. He goes, no problem. He had me out of there lickety split. I mean, he, he could tell that I was going somewhere that was important to me. The short answer to your question is my pregame ritual is to study the ritual out loud to myself to make sure that number one, I know the work, but number two, that I'm making it conversational. Because I think that's important. I think by, by delivering a lecture, a guy that does it in a monotone and recites words doesn't really convey a good image to whoever it might be. Because it's, it's, it's always about when we're doing degrees, it's always about the candidate. It's not about the officers. It's all about the candidate. So I would want to make sure that the candidate got the best I could give him by doing what I did. So yeah, pre, uh, pre-ritual ritual. I mean, this is something I've been, as you can tell, I've been working overtime in my little lizard brain coming up with completely unique questions, right? That people, Masons, have not been asked in this way. And it catches you off guard, uh, especially something like that. Well, what do you do? Well, I mean, well, what do you mean? We, we attend a rehearsal and then that's our pre-ritual ritual, you know, but no. Uh, if you apply it to it, like I just said, and there was guys, I'm telling you, their pre-game rituals were, were pretty, they were regimented. And if you interrupted that ritual, you were going to get it you were going to catch hell because he, that's what he needed. He, he needed that to get himself in the right mindset. All right. So let me ask you one more question here. Cause I think we, we how long we've been going here has been a good conversation, by the way. Um, and thank you. Let's see what, let's see what you can come up with. Um, so according to California grand lodge, uh, we only have about 40,000, members like i was discussing with you you know and and they haven't stopped bleeding people continue to leave and we've been trying to figure out the solution like okay how do we stop the bleeding and now but now like um all of california is more consciously aware now you know lodges are aware of this um the numbers are still going down and we can't seem to retain members like we would like do you have any idea of how this could be remedied Yeah, uh, simple words. Um, it's something that you and I have talked about a lot and I've explained it to you. Uh, their members aren't engaged. They're leaving because they're not getting anything out of it. Um, probably leaving a lodge where their stated meeting lasts two hours and nothing got accomplished. Um, I, I've seen members of our lodge leave because of one person. And they leave and that one person never comes back either. So I didn't lose, you didn't lose two people or you didn't lose one person, you lost two. Well, and so possibly, possibly more, right? Because there are other members watching that. Sure. And so you, even though they show up, you've lost them as far as willing to step up and do anything like no i'm just going to come and i'm 
you know, I want to be a pinch hitter. That's all I want to be. You know, stuff like that. Well, I think a lot of guys come to Lodge for a reason. I think that they're looking for something more in their life. Absolutely. And um, when I say engaged, what I'm trying to say or convey is they show up at Lodge. They sit down to dinner. It's the same green beans and meatloaf every every month. <laughs> and nobody's talking to them. Or they're not talking to anybody, one or the other. Um, I think that, I think that, no, you're going to ask me, I think next is how do I remedy that? My suggestion would be is, is that they start doing some of the, follow some of our examples. And the, the biggest one is having um, time for fellowship. Yeah. Having That's time huge. for these guys to be social with one another instead of just showing up, eating a, a tired old meal yeah. and sitting in on a tired old meeting. I think we should uh, clarify when we talk about like for me, for me, if you were to ask me, okay, do you have anything out of that? Yes. Fellowship means that we're not just going to show up and not do any work and then just have cigars and libations or, or whatever it may be. We always wanted to earn it, earn that fellowship time. Whether that was, we're gonna go into the lodge room and rehearse together as a team. And once we put in about an hour's hard work and everybody showed that they're actually paying attention and that they're learning their ritual work the way it's supposed to be. Hey, now let's go into the lounge and that, this fellowship, let's enjoy it. We've worked hard. We deserve this, this moment's respite, this hour, two hours of fellowship, good music, libations, sitting down, just come conversing. And then other times we had man cave night, right? Fellowship night. Everybody bring a piece of steak. Everybody bring your favorite beverage. Or, you know, we, we get somebody, you know, to bring beverages. You know, we give them the money. And then he brings the beverage, uh, beverages. Um, and then we have, we have fellowship night, we have man cave night, but fellowship is incredibly, um, yeah, that's the glue. I mean, that's the fellowship is the glue. If there is no fellowship in your lodge, you are missing a big component. So yeah, good, good point. Good, very good point. Now, having said that, how much fellowship was being practiced when you were going to the line? Yeah. Does that answer the question? Zero, none. The guys that show up, they'd stand around in the dining hall for, you know, mm -hmm. 15, 20 minutes, have a soda pop or a bottle of water or whatever, go into the lodge, do the thing, and everybody just go home. Nobody stuck around. Nobody hung around to visit with one another, to find out what's going on in their life. Mm. And I honestly believe that um, having time and making time for your members to have that opportunity is important because after all, part of coming to lodge is supposed to be like an escape, isn't it? Where you get away from your regular world, whether it's mundane or exciting, it's a place to get away where you're, you're improving yourself. 
well, you're not only improving yourself, but you're, you're also hopefully helping to improve other people. And at the same time, you're checking out of your world. You're, you're getting away from all of the things. I mean, I've said this several times, and that is, is that, you know, I, I don't have a perfect life. I've, I've worked my butt off my whole life. And I might have a boss that's chewing on my butt on lodge night. And maybe my dog did eat my homework or something. And I show up at Lodge. And as soon as I turn the car off and get out and shut the door, all of that stuff that I was carrying around with me for the whole day is left in the car, so to speak, metaphorically. I walk through the doors of the Lodge. And for me, it was, it was an escape. It was a different world. It was a place where I didn't have to worry about all of the things that life really can give you. So guys, if you're listening and your brothers, try to remember if you take one thing away today from listening to this is to make that your, make that your pre-ritual ritual to leave your stuff outside the door. Because if you leave your stuff outside the door, you're going to be more engaged inside the door and you're going to be more engaged with the people that are there. Thank you for that. And I think um, we've come up on our time here. We had, uh, and, I'm, and I'm, I hope, I hope, and I, uh, well, I'm not going to hope. Let's make it a, a point to come back and continue this conversation because there's a number of things that we can easily spend an hour or two on as far as uh, different aspects and uh, ideas that were bounced around today. But before we end, I do want to spend the time, uh, Jeff, to acknowledge you, acknowledge your service, your, your years of service to the fraternity. Um, uh, when the lodge was having a hard time, uh, I reached out to you and, and you did not hesitate to uh, come in and help any way you could. Uh, you know, I acknowledge your, your commitment when you were here, you know, you committed every Tuesday, you hardly ever miss just like me in those uh, two or three years of building up the lodge back up. Uh, you and I were a constant, uh, you the sharing of your experiences and the sharing of you, no matter how painful it was at times. I, you know, so I, I acknowledge that and I want to, and thank you. Thank you for, for all those years uh, and uh, everything that you were willing to, uh, you know, contribute to what we were trying to do, including sitting in as secretary on a moment's notice, sitting in the, in the West and uh, sitting in the East for several of our, of our degrees. Uh, thank you. Are there any last words you want to, you want to share with the listeners? Well, I want to thank you for, for the acknowledgement. Um, sometimes we don't get validation and, you know, uh, not looking for it, but I appreciate it. Anything left for the listeners, I would like to just encourage them to take to heart and find maybe one or two things that, that we talked about today and take them and put them in a little box and take them to your lodge and try to start instituting change there. 
because if you're if you're losing members, for example, there's a way that it can be fixed. I do want to say this before I before I let this end, and that is is that a lot of lodges think that you think that it's a bad thing to have alcoholic beverages in the lodge. If you read the California Masonic Code, the Masonic Code states that no alcoholic beverage can be stored on the premises of the lodge. So if you bring alcohol in, you have to take alcohol out. Now, the Masonic Code in California also says that you can't you're not supposed to have everybody bring their own drinks. You know, you're supposed to give money or, or pay back the guy who went out and bought the, the beverages that you're having for that night. And that's something that every lodge should practice because we don't want to go the way of the Elks. And so sometimes, you know, having a, having a glass of wine with dinner, even if it's that meatloaf and green beans, you know, a little glass of wine doesn't hurt. And it will, it will create conversation. It will gladden the heart. Yeah, that too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Very well said. And to close it out, uh, this is Masonic Muscle, and this has been another exercise in critical thinking and speculation, challenging you all to question everything. Question everything, brethren. The, the trivium says it. Question everything. Stay strong, take care of your health, eat well, exercise, spend time with your family, friends, relatives, and neighbors. Stick together, stay united, and remember, if you do not, as a Mason, contribute to the common stock of knowledge and understanding, you may be deemed a drone in the hive of nature, a useless member of society and unworthy of our protection as a Mason. Peace out.